It's a virus type so common that almost every male and female in the U.S. will be infected by some form of it during their lifetime. The human papillomavirus is the most common sexually transmitted disease. It's maybe not as well known as some of the other STDs, probably because there's not a lot of symptoms from it. The good news is it's preventable. There is a way to prevent HPV with vaccination. But for some, it can have devastating consequences. Throat cancer, HPV prevalent. And later, we'll discover a clinical trial that's showing promising results for treating active infection in women. Women who cleared their HPV lesions also cleared their HPV status completely. So in the whole population, we had about a 40% decrease in people who actually had HPV. We're learning all about the human papillomavirus inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter's Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. It's estimated that 80 million Americans are currently infected with the human papillomavirus, or HPV, with 14 million people in our country becoming newly infected each year. Considering most of us will be exposed to it in our lifetime, it's important to understand HPV, what it is, how to prevent getting it, and the potentially serious consequences it can have on our health. Dr. Denise Uyar is an associate professor, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Division of Gynecology Oncology, at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She recently shared her insights with us first explaining how we come in contact with HPV. It is a sexually transmitted disease. The intimate contact is really how it's spread. So it's contracted by skin-to-skin contact, essentially. If you've never heard of human papillomavirus, you're not alone. Many people haven't. But paradoxically, Dr. Uyar says it's a very common disease. The human papillomavirus is the most common sexually transmitted disease. It's maybe not as well known as some of the other STDs, probably because there's not a lot of symptoms from it. So you can have an infection and it really cannot be a problem for the person. So they don't seek treatment for it necessarily. And while it may sound like a singular disease, Dr. Uyar explains that HPV has many subtypes, several of which can lead to certain types of cancer. There's over 100 subtypes. About 14 of them are cancer-causing. So it's oral mucosa, 
anogenital mucosa. Those are the main places where we see that infection cause cancer. Just how common is HPV? So in the U.S., there's about 80 million cases. By age 50, four out of five women will have had an infection at some point in their lifetime. So it's very common. She mentions females, but what about males? Does HPV affect males and females in equal proportion? Not necessarily. It affects both males and females, but what we have is our numbers of cancer to look at, and if we look at that as the most important figure, HPV-related cancers are disproportionately more affecting women than men as far as the net cancers. She provides some numbers to support this point. There's about 80 million people infected in the U.S., but there's about 33,000 cancers annually. About 20,000 would be female and about 13,000 male. Which specific cancers are known to be caused by HPV? Specifically for women, it would be cervical cancer. That's kind of the highest cancer numbers in women. And then vaginal, vulvar, anogenital, penile, and oropharyngeal. And Dr. Uyar breaks this down a little further along gender lines. Cervical cancer is exclusively female. Anogenital actually is maybe more males than females. Oropharyngeal is more males than females. But because there's vaginal, vulvar, cervical cancers in females, the net numbers are still higher in women overall. Is cervical cancer the most common cancer caused by HPV? It was, but now numbers indicate otherwise. Cervical cancer has kind of leveled off. That's something that was a little unexpected. Cervical cancer has always been what's talked about with HPV, but now oropharyngeal cancer ticked up higher in the numbers, and it's disproportionately affects more men than women. We'll hear from a patient who battled oropharyngeal cancer caused by HPV later on in this show. But ahead of that, we asked Dr. Uyar how long can it be between exposure to HPV and the infection becoming cancer. It can be decades when you get an infection at sexual intercourse or contact, and that can be somewhere in people's teens or 20s. And then when you see people with cancer, it can be 10 to 30 years later. They can be 40s, 50s, getting malignancy at that point. But she adds that while most of us will be infected with HPV, most infections won't develop into cancer. Most people's immune system can handle this infection, and the infection is thought to be cleared or at least in control for most people in about two years. But there's a small percent of the population, their immune system is not able to control the infection, and so the virus is allowed to kind of coexist, and ultimately cancer can develop. Are there other types of cancer known to be caused by a virus, or is HPV unique in this way? It's not alone. There are six or seven other viruses that are related to cancer. Hepatitis B and C are related to liver cancer. Epstein-Barr virus is related to a certain type of lymphoma, so there's other viral types, but HPV is certainly the most common. Next, let's look at detecting HPV. Dr. Uyar begins by looking at screening for HPV in women. The pap test is the screen, so the guidelines recommend between 21 and 30 you can have just the cytology, which is just collecting cells from the cervix, and then from 30 to 65. They also send the cells for testing, looking for the presence of the virus. How often should women be screened? If you're just doing the cytology alone and it's been normal, then it is every three years. If you're doing the two tests together after age 30 and there's been normal screening, it actually extends to every five. If you have abnormal testing, you follow an algorithm to see when you come back. If you have to do additional testing, 
sometimes even a biopsy. So it changes based on the result. And the efficacy of HPV screening for women? Excellent. The lifetime risk of cervical cancer is not high, which is great. With screening, there's probably less than a 1% lifetime risk. But the caveat is that they have to have the regular screening and following the guidelines. Detecting HPV in men is a different story. It's not that we don't have good screening procedures. We don't have any. There is no screening test for men. So in the absence of a screening test for men, you would think they might be at a higher risk for developing HPV-related cancer. But the fact is... If we look at the net cancer rates annually, still women have a higher rate than men. We still need better ways to do screening for men. There is no screen for oral pharyngeal cancer, which I'm sure many people are working on since those numbers are rising. So how how does a man know if he has HPV in his body? If he's sexually active, should he just assume that he does? Looking at the numbers, you do have to assume that you've had contact with the HPV virus if you're sexually active. But the most common scenario is that an intact immune system will take care of that virus. Next, let's look at prevention. Because the human papilloma virus is preventable. There is a way to prevent with vaccination. Since 2006, there's been a vaccination that's been available. And now it has nine of the HPV types in there. It is available for males and females. When's the best time to get vaccinated? The recommended ages are 11 and 12, but you can receive it as young as nine and as old as 26. If you're a parent, you might be wondering, does my daughter or son really need to be vaccinated so young? It works best before someone has contact with the HPV viruses, so it works best before a person has had sexual intercourse. But even if you've been exposed to some of the viral types, it's still effective. So that's why the age range is as wide as it is. What's the process for getting vaccinated? If you're able to get it in before age 15, it's two vaccinations. You get the first dose and then the second dose in six months, roughly. But if you're after age 15 or you have immunocompromised state, you do need three vaccinations. First dose, then in two months, then in six months. Dr. Uyar says it's important for females and males to be vaccinated. But are both genders getting vaccinated in equal measure? In the states right now, our vaccination rates are about 60%, but that's for just receiving one vaccination. The completion rate for receiving the vaccination is 40 to 50%. If you break it down male, female, females, it's about the 40 to 50, and for males, it's about 30 to 40. Why this disparity? Dr. Uyar has a theory. It was first recommended to females. The male recommendation from the FDA came out a little bit later. So now that the manufacturers have realigned this vaccine with STD prevention is certainly very important, but the cancer prevention message is kind of taking precedent. So the messaging of it has changed, and I think we'll see the vaccination uptake in males will improve. How successful is the HPV vaccination known to be at this point? I wish it was better. The states were not one of the early adopters for this vaccination, and as a result, we lag behind other countries. They have seen more benefit than we have in the states. However, research shows that for those vaccinated, it's highly effective. There is data that the viral types and the resultant infections are decreasing. In age 14 to 19, there's been 64% decrease in the viral types. And in age 20 to 24, about 30% decrease. But if we had been early adopters, we could be 
even better. Has the reduction in HPV infections resulted in fewer cases of HPV-related cancers? There is not a demonstrated cancer decrease yet, but if the viral infections are decreased, then you can make that leap rationally that the resulting cancers will be decreased, but it will take more time to prove that. Dr. Uyar says while we may not be seeing HPV-related cancers dropping yet, we have seen some amazing progress. The human papillomavirus was suspected as a cause of cervical cancer back in the 80s. In the 90s, it was actually confirmed. In the late 90s, 2000s, virus-like particles that could be used in a vaccination were being evaluated for prevention. And then in 2006, the vaccine was released. So if you look at that timeline, that's an amazing accomplishment. Up next, we focus our CTSI on an HPV-related clinical trial that's showing positive results in treating HPV-related cervical precancers in women. Here's Kayla Pierce to tell us more. Thanks, Brian. Dr. Diane Harper is professor of family medicine and obstetrics and gynecology at Michigan Medical and senior associate director of the Michigan Institute for Clinical and Health Research at the University of Michigan. We had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Harper, and her excitement about her recently completed clinical trial is evident. I am incredibly excited that we have made the progress we have in finding agents that cause the immune cells to attack this virus and get rid of it, which is not something we have ever been able to have before. Making this groundbreaking, promising research. It really is, because of all the therapeutic vaccines to date, none of them have been able to show the viral clearance that we've been able to show. That's critically important. Through surgery, you can remove diseased tissue, but if you don't get to the underlying HPV infection, you may have recurrences. And if we could get to destroying the actual HPV infection, we wouldn't have to worry about recurrences. Which brings us to the two main objectives objectives of her recent clinical trial relative to HPV-related cervical precancers. First, women who already had an advanced stage of change, but not yet cancer, caused by HPV in their cervix, could we get that to disappear? We then looked at the different types of HPV and could this therapeutic vaccine help them clear their disease? And the second objective, we wanted to see, could we clear the virus itself? So first measure what's going on in the tissue, and the second was let's measure how much virus we still have. What exactly are the precancer lesions that women in this clinical trial had? HPV is this virus that worms its way down until it gets all the way at the very bottom of the skin layer, and it it often doesn't do anything, but sometimes it actually goes into the nucleus of the cell, and when it joins into your human DNA, it starts to make precancerous lesions that we like to get rid of because we don't know which of those are going into full-blown cancer, so we get rid of them at an early stage. These precancer lesions are medically known as cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, or we call it CIN, and then we grade it. We know that grade one is just infection, nothing to do with cancer. Grade three has everything to do with cancer because you can't get to cancer unless you go through CIN3. We're not really sure what CIN2 means because we don't know what it does. Unfortunately, there's no way to know if a woman's CIN3 precancer cells will become full-blown cancer. That's the problem. If you follow CIN3 and you don't treat them, 40% of those women will go into cancer in 30 years. But we don't know how to determine which women are going into cancer and which women aren't. What's been the standard treatment for CIN3 cervical precancer lesions? Standard of 
preventive medical care is if a woman has a CIN3 lesion, and in many places, CIN2 or 3 lesion, she is automatically recommended to have surgical treatment, which can remove the area of cells that are abnormal that are seen. Next, we discussed specifics of Dr. Harper's clinical trial. First, what level of CIN did patients have in order to participate? They all had their very first biopsy-confirmed CIN23 lesion. Their biopsy was then reviewed by a central panel, and if the panel said you have CIN2 or you have CIN3 disease, they were invited to participate in the trial, and they were then randomized. Two people got the vaccine for every one person who got placebo. How many women participated? Overall, we had 206 women entering the study from both the United States and Western Europe. From that, 192 actually qualified. And what was the treatment they received? They got three shots in the thigh because the thigh is really close to the pelvic lymph nodes where we're going to get the immune cells to be activated to work in the cervix. Were these three shots spread out over time? The shots were given on day one, a week later, on day eight, and on day 15, so a week apart. The specific vaccine used in her clinical trial to treat active HPV is known as type Papkinogen Sovacevac, or TS. Dr. Harper explains that it's very different than Gardasil, the vaccine used to prevent HPV. Papkinogen Sovacevac is a therapeutic HPV vaccine delivering three different genes. The first one codes for interleukin-2, which wakes up the immune system. The other two genes are based on the HPV DNA, the E6 and the E7 genes. This vaccine is different than the Gardasil 9 vaccine because HPV has two kinds of genes. Early genes that create the E6 and the E7, those are the genes produced when HPV is becoming cancer. Late genes prevent infection with the prophylactic vaccine, such as Gardasil. So this vaccine targets parts of the HPV that are actually causing cancers in the human body. Following the TS therapy, Participants received surgical treatment six months later. Dr. Harper notes the significance of this. In order to do this trial, we are taking women who know they have a cancer precursor, and we are asking them to wait six months to see if this vaccine will do any good for them. And that is hard. So we were able to safely monitor these women and yet give the vaccine a chance to work. What happened after the six-month waiting period? At six months, everyone was treated and their cervix was then looked at by the pathologist so they could determine was there any disease left. That was the beauty of the study. We could then give them that six-month time frame to see if they would clear. And what were the notable findings in the trial participants? Looking at women who had a CIN3 lead, 36% of them had complete resolution of the disease. That placebo, 0% cleared. That is huge. The ability to clear real CIN3 disease was very apparent, regardless of what the HPV type was. People who cleared their HPV lesions also cleared their HPV status completely. So in the whole population, we had about a 40% decrease in people who actually had HPV. But participation didn't end there, because Dr. Harper and her team continued to track participants for over two years. 
Did they remain free of HPV symptoms? Most of them did. Out of the 129 women who were treated with vaccine, 17 had another biopsy done, which is an excellent response rate. And in this case, most of the women didn't have any more abnormalities. Is this level of follow-up typical in HPV research? No, we're the first study that has actually followed women out for a total of 30 months which is one of the really strong points of the study. Dr. Harper says the results of this clinical trial are promising. It really gives us a strong hope that we'll be able to develop therapy that we can provide women so that they don't have to undergo these surgical procedures. Anything to prevent surgery would be a big improvement for women. What about men affected by HPV? I have emails from men who say, can I be in your trials? As soon as we open up trials looking at HPV in other precancers, we absolutely want to bring men in so that we can offer this cure for male patients as well. This vaccination isn't perfect, but it's certainly getting noticed. Now, it doesn't work in everybody, but it was highly successful in those that it worked in, and there have been many people who have read about it or heard about it and would like to try it should it ever come to market. How long it could be until the TS vaccination comes to market is unknown. FDA has done a good job at trying to make a fast track to get products to market that really show impact in disease, but this was a phase 2B trial, so we would need a phase 3 trial where we had a lot more participants. But Dr. Harper believes she and her research team are on the right track for significantly impacting treatment of HPV cancers. As we gather more and more evidence about how this compound works for people with HPV infections in many different areas, we'll really be able to impact the future of HPV-associated cancers in general. In the meantime, she encourages everyone to consider the importance of clinical trials in advancing medicine for each of us. Listen for advances on these kinds of compounds and ask physicians, is there something else you can do? Because it's only when we get patients who say, I will take a less than perfect vaccine. I may need to have the surgery later, but try shots on me first. And if it goes away, I'm much better off. Brian, this is an exciting development in HPV research, and it really shows the progress being made in HPV prevention and treatment. Speaking of progress, after we finished our earlier interview with Dr. Denise Uyar, she reached back to us with some breaking news on an HPV vaccination update. So the latest is that the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices just decided to allow providers to offer the vaccination for men and women aged 27 to 45. So, I mean, there is a whole large group of people now that have this available to them as a preventative measure. As we've heard, HPV is preventable through vaccination. We've also learned that, fortunately, the human immune system can suppress the virus in those who don't get vaccinated. But not everyone is so fortunate. And those people are faced with the very real, very serious consequences of HPV. Let's meet one of them. This is Ronnie. I'm 53 years old. I'm married for 28 years and two kids. First time grandparent, construction operating engineer. I operate heavy equipment. He describes his life today as overall good. For everything I went through, I would say I'm really blessed. I'm very lucky. But it's on how you look at things too. Right. Because there are some who would say Ronnie was anything but lucky just a few short years ago when he saw his overall health change from generally quite good. I didn't get sick very often, so uh, good health actually, good health. To suddenly seriously ill. I was coughing a lot, but it was only at night. Cough all night and I couldn't sleep. 
Went to the doctor, he couldn't find nothing. And it was a couple days after the doctor visit, maybe a week. I woke up at three, four in the morning, felt something in my neck. I didn't know what it was. A lump came out of left field because it wasn't there the day before. I would have seen it or felt that. I'm like, huh, well, we'll go to the doctor again. And he wasn't sure, so go see this ear, nose, and throat doctor. And then when I went there, that's when everything showed up. We finally knew what was going on. The diagnosis. Throat cancer, HPV prevalent. Ronnie vividly remembers learning he had cancer in what he now refers to as the call. I was at work and I got the call and it wasn't a good one. My boss was right there and he goes, what happened? I said, I found out I got throat cancer. Then uh, I went home. I can't concentrate on it. You just got devastating news that life's on the line. So that phone call, that was tough. Once the initial shock wore off, he says he was met with another strong feeling about having throat cancer. I think denial, like, eh, come on. It can't be that bad. We'll get through this, not a problem. I didn't know it was as serious as it was. But once he started treatment, he realized just how serious his condition and his battle against it were going to be. It was chemo for three mass doses. Other people do the same type of chemo, but it's in six smaller doses. But I took the mass doses because it was the less chance of it coming back. And the doctor said straight out, this treatment you're getting is going to be hell. He goes, this is the most painful type of treatment that people will ever go for because it's radiation in your throat for six and a half weeks, five days a week, and then mass chemo. So it was very aggressive treatment because he told me it was stage four. Ronnie says the side effects during treatment left him with no quality of life. Oh. The treatment was so bad, your throat's on fire. Just picture the sun in your throat. Picture the worst canker sore on your tongue and times it by a million. Your throat's on fire, the outside of your throat is all red and scarred. After a while, you have no taste buds. Your tongue becomes hamburger meat from the radiation. I mean, you have no saliva. Eating was a chore, just trying to eat. You're not hungry, you ate just to survive. I lost 42 pounds and there was no quality of life. But he says focusing on making it through one moment at a time ultimately helped him survive weeks of pain and suffering. You go through it second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour. You don't think about tomorrow. You just go with each second, and that's what gets you through it. He also recalls an emotional conversation he had, asking his family for a favor to help him get through cancer treatment. I sat my girls down and my wife. I said, you're gonna see me look ill. You're gonna see me weak. And I promise you all, I'm not gonna die. I'm gonna make it. We're gonna get through this, but I need one favor from all of you. Do not cry around me. Don't do it. Because if you cry around me, it brings me down knowing that I'm hurting you. That's how I felt. I'm gonna feel like I'm hurting them. And I remember that conversation pretty well. And Years later, he still feels the sting. But Ronnie says, as hard as that was for his wife and daughters, they honored his request. They were remarkable. They were pretty damn good at not showing that around me. And that was huge. God bless them for that because it affected them, but they were not letting me know it. And they were amazing. After weeks of treatment and a couple of hospital stays, he felt he was beating his HPV-related throat cancer. After the second stint in the hospital, I remember when I came home, I just knew the worst was over, the treatments were over. And then a week later, I washed two cars in the driveway. And after that, my wife says, you're doing too much because I had that bit of energy where I felt like a human being, even though I was frail. Today, Ronnie looks healthy because he is healthy. 
and he can readily tell you exactly how long he's been cancer-free. Six years and four weeks. But with ongoing checkups, cancer is never far from his mind. Every year was another PET exam. You just start praying again, don't find nothing because I've had friends that were free and then they find something and then they're gone with this same cancer. With successful prevention of HPV today, what would Ronnie tell himself about vaccination if he could turn back the clock? If they had it then? Oh God, I'd tell myself to get it. I'm definitely for it. Of course, he can't turn back the clock, but he can positively reflect on successfully battling cancer. In many ways, cancer saved me. I'm the same guy, but I think getting the cancer opened my eyes more to try to be more kind. It made me happier overall. So believe it or not, it did some good. He offers encouragement for anyone fighting cancer. I wish I could see you right now and just say, you got this, don't give up, and definitely don't think it's the end, because it's not. We asked Ronnie, what does it feel like to beat cancer? Without missing a beat, he rolled up his shirt sleeve to reveal a large tattoo of a very familiar letter S. Right here. Superman. I beat it. He is a Superman. Time now to put the finishing touches on this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Denise Uyar, Dr. Diane Harper, and special thanks to Ronnie for sharing his personal story of battling and beating HPV-related cancer. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. Make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, along with Kayla Pierce, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer, co-produced by Kenyon Proby, in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.